uh, Brian Gotch in the office this week. Didn't he do a great job last week? I forgot to tell, uh, Brian, I forgot to tell you the story about the first time that I preached at TCF. And uh, Tom Buck never lets me forget this one. The morning, I show up in the morning, you know, we have our intercessory prayer list out here. And on the top of the intercessory prayer list, it says, please pray for the morning service. Bill Sullivan is preaching. Well, we didn't do that for you, Brian, but we did, we did pray for you. But <laughs> Hello. Okay. In uh, preparing for this morning's message, I found a little fable about this dog who loved to chase other animals. And he bragged about what great running skills, how fast he was, and said he could catch anything. Well, it wasn't long before uh, a rabbit tried to put his claims to the test. And the rabbit ran and ran and ran and outran the dog. And the other animals, they, having heard this dog boast about how quick he was, how fast he was, how he could catch anything, they were laughing. And the dog kind of huffing and puffing said, well, you know, you forget I was only running for fun, but the rabbit, he was running for his life. And it made me think about something. Why we do something does make a major difference in how we do it, doesn't it? Motivation may be the most important factor in almost everything that we do. We see this idea addressed in one of Paul's letters to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Right now in France, one of the biggest cycling events in the world is going on. Any of you been watching some of the coverage of the Tour de France? I know we have a lot of bicyclists here. It's about a 2,200-mile race, and it takes place over about 23 days, the terrain for the race ranges from very flat to very mountainous, and by any standards, it's a very grueling race. Have you ever thought about what kind of motivation it takes for people to put themselves through something like that, a 2,200-mile race? Now, some of us think they're just crazy, but not all of us think that. Not just the tour itself, but think about the months and even the years of the training that it takes to even compete, let alone finish, let alone finish high enough to earn some money from it. Now, if you're a world-class cyclist, you may be motivated, at least in part, by the prize money. My understanding is that it's about three-quarters of a million dollars for first prize. So you might think, well, that's worth all the energy, the time. You might be motivated by the endorsement opportunities. For a, so for a handful of these guys... These men and women who ride the bike in the Tour de France, it's how they make their living. But it's not for all of them. What about those who have no chance to win or even have any chance to come close to winning, but they can only compete? Think about the Boston Marathon. More than 20,000 runners compete in that 26-mile foot race every April in Boston. There's prize money in this, too. But let's face it, if you're among the top finishers, the prize money may be a motivation, but what if you're number 19,995 out of 20,000? 
Why would you go through all that? Is there enough satisfaction? Is there enough pleasure? Are there enough positive results from the training and the run itself to justify this? Apparently so. That's why you have people competing in these two very high-profile races who have no chance of actually winning. But clearly there's some motivation beyond that because every weekend you see weekend warriors with similar events where they run or they bicycle hundreds of miles. It happens all over our country just about every weekend. And prize money clearly isn't the motivator in these cases, yet hundreds if not thousands still compete. Motivation. It's an interesting thing. Motivation is the internal condition that activates behavior and it gives direction. It energizes and it directs goal-oriented behavior. Motivation is the psychological feature that arouses an organism to action toward a desired goal. It's the reason for the action that gives purpose and direction to behavior. Think about this question. Have you ever thought about this question? Why does anybody commit themselves to anything? Well, for a test of physical endurance, there can be all kinds of reasons that are motivational enough. For example, getting in or staying in good physical condition. In other words, for your health. Sometimes people ride bikes or run, do some other kind of endurance activity for that sake. But then there's, for others, there's the sense of satisfaction of doing something difficult, of challenging yourself and completing it. Or maybe it's for the sheer sense of adventure that such an undertaking brings, despite the cost. Or maybe for some, it's just plain fun. Motivation may be harder or easier to understand, depending on the situation, but I think it's pretty safe to say that most of us Pretty much all of us are motivated by rewards of some sort. We don't do much of anything without at least some goal, some end, some hoped for result clearly in mind, even if the goal is as simple as relaxation or refreshing or fun. And I believe even rewards are a significant kind of the motivation that Scripture speaks of, and we see that about motivation and commitment in Scripture. But there can be more depth to motivation, at least the kind of motivation we see described in the Word of God. And so we see in what we just read of Paul's letter to Timothy some of these things displayed. This morning, I'd like to take the next several minutes focusing on the idea in verse 12 of the passage that we read at the outset. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight. We see here in these few words a motivator used by Paul for Timothy. Now, I have to admit that for many years I had a tacit understanding without ever having really thought about it, about this verse. And as I studied it, I found out that my understanding of this verse was inaccurate to some degree. This is a phrase that Paul uses three times in his two letters to Timothy. Fight the good fights also found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, in addition to this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, when I read this phrase, fight the good fight, in any of these instances without really reflecting on it, I'd think it meant essentially fight well or fight hard. 
or something like that. I thought it meant that we were to throw ourselves into the fight and we were to persevere. Now, there are other passages of Scripture that don't use these words, don't use words fight the good fight, but they do carry this other meaning, the idea that we are, in fact, to make every effort to fight the good fight well, to fight hard, so to speak. But in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, good fight doesn't speak only of how well I fight. Rather, it speaks of the quality and worth of the fight itself. In other words, here Paul is saying it's a good fight. It's a noble fight. It's a noble effort. It's a fight that is worth fighting. The word good can mean literally beautiful. So I guess that would make it a beautiful fight. These two words, beautiful and fight, don't usually go together in our minds, do they? But there it is. And of course, fight doesn't mean fight as in fist fight or war or battle, at least in this context. Yes, Scripture does present the Christian life in these terms and other places, but here, in this passage of Scripture, it's more along the lines of a competition, even an athletic competition. Paul uses that imagery often in Scripture as well. So Paul's saying to Timothy, compete in this beautiful competition. And the word fight here is a command, so Paul's implying, do it, Timothy. As you pursue righteousness, as you pursue, as you seek after godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, as you really pursue these things, really seek after them, really fight for these things. Why? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. It's a good fight. It's a beautiful fight. This fight, this competition we find ourselves in is worth it. It's worth the effort. It's worth the energy expended. Now, this is a question we have to ask about all kinds of things in our lives. Really, almost anything, isn't it? Is it worth it? There has to be some reason. There has to be some reason that what we do is worth doing. Otherwise, why would we spend the time? Why would we spend the energy? Why would we spend our money or our resources on it if it's not worth doing? Why spend it at all? Why experience the physical or emotional pain? Why maybe make the sacrifice, the inevitable challenge that many things require, if it's not really and truly worth it? Of course, there are good reasons and deep reasons, as well as bad reasons and shallow reasons for doing things. But there has to be at least some reason. Some reason we'll spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a vacation or a piece of home electronics. There has to be some reason we will invest hours of time reading a book. There has to be some reason we spend time helping a neighbor or a friend. There has to be some reason we do our jobs. Perhaps it's just the paycheck for the job. Perhaps it's just the relaxation and refreshing that a vacation gives us. Perhaps it's the needed knowledge that we gain when we read a book. Perhaps when we help a neighbor or a friend, we hope they'll return the favor. Or maybe we just need a friend ourselves. But in the Christian life, often our motivation may look like one thing on the surface, but in actuality it's something higher or more noble, something more important in the scheme of things deeper below the surface. So Paul here is telling Timothy that this fight, 
this fight of the faith is worth it. And to fight this fight, he urges Timothy to take hold of, it can literally mean this word to take hold of can mean get a grip on, get a grip on the eternal life to which he was called. So here we see hints of the higher purpose for which Paul urges Timothy to fight the good fight. Even when we become followers of Christ, we still have, we still need motivation to do certain things. But as we are changed into the image and likeness of Jesus, our motivation is changed or sanctified, if you will, along with the rest of us. It doesn't happen overnight. And in some ways, our motivations are always being refined, as with other areas of our character. But Paul is appealing to the highest motivations here and in other places in the New Testament. Yet because we are, in fact, fragile jars of clay, each one of us, and because we need to be moved, we need to be compelled to have a reason for investing our time, our money, our lives in anything, Paul is providing this higher level of motivation. He's telling Timothy that this is a good fight. It's a worthwhile fight. It's a fight that's worth fighting, a contest worth competing in. And yes, it does take effort. The word for fight here in the original language is the same word from which we get our English word agonize. Let me ask you if you think that Lance Armstrong agonizes riding his bicycle uphill in the French Alps. I'm guessing he does. It's a fight. It takes effort. But for him and for others, it's a beautiful fight. It's a fight worth fighting, despite the cost. It brings satisfaction. It brings peace. It brings joy. How can that be? How can such a costly fight, whether it's riding and competing in the Tour de France or living the Christian life, how can it bring satisfaction, peace, and joy? Well, think of it this way. If riding a bicycle can bring a sense of satisfaction or accomplishment to someone, and it must to some degree, or there wouldn't be so many people doing it, it's clear that serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the maker of the universe, the one who created us, the one who paid the price for our salvation, can bring satisfaction, peace, and joy far above and beyond what any worldly task or activity could bring. I'm not knocking some of these things that bring satisfaction to us. There is a tremendous satisfaction. There's a sense of satisfaction in us when we work hard to achieve something. I've had a chance to be a part of a championship basketball team as a player and then again as a coach. I can say it was a good fight, it was a beautiful fight, despite the challenges and obstacles, maybe even because of those things. And these experiences brought a kind of satisfaction and joy that's really hard to describe unless you've experienced it. But if these earthly things, which I believe God blesses us with, can help us achieve a measure of satisfaction in our lives, how much more can fighting, not just a good fight, but the good fight bring. These things in our lives, even as a gift from God, are only a small taste. They're just a hint of what we can experience when we participate in, when we compete in the good fight, the beautiful fight, 
the good fight that matters for eternity, the good fight that involves serving the purposes of God. Brian spoke last week about this in a little bit different context. He noted that when the apostle Peter fixed his eyes on Jesus, he was enabled, he was compelled, he was motivated to do faith-filled things. In his case, he walked on water. But when Peter looked at the challenge instead of at Jesus, his faith waned and so did his motivation to do what he had set out to do. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, it motivates us to commitment, to commitment to something greater than ourselves. And deep commitment propels us to action. It propels us to do something. It changes us. It changes our behavior, and it changes our attitude. It changes who we are. Brian also quoted John chapter 1, verse 14, which says of Jesus, we have seen his glory. He noted that when we see his glory, it changes the way we view the world. Now think about this. When we truly grasp that idea, when we truly at least begin to understand that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and dwells among us still, it changes us. When we truly begin to understand these things, it changes us. Or it should. Perhaps if it doesn't, then maybe we haven't really met him. And as we look at the crucified Lord and his sacrifice for us, we are motivated, we are compelled to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Fixing our eyes on the incarnate Jesus, on the crucified Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, it prompts us, it motivates us to change. It motivates us to die to self. And dying to self isn't just words. It results in visible attitudes and visible actions. It compels us to fight the good fight and all that this means. It begins to help us understand that it's worth it. It's worth it. We can see from Scripture that it was worth it for Jesus. Brian also read a passage from Hebrews last week to get at the importance of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let me expand on that idea for a moment and tie it to the beautiful fight. I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, Brian emphasized the idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the foundational point for us all. But I want to note that this fixing our eyes on Jesus is part of fighting the good fight. What was Jesus' motivation? to endure the cross, his love for us, of course. But here we see that he did, in fact, endure the cross. Endure implies a battle, a fight, perseverance, doesn't it? Why, though, did Jesus endure the cross? His motivation was the joy set before him. For Jesus, the cross was worth it. The joy set before him 
motivated Jesus to endure. For Jesus, the cross was a good fight. It was a fight worth fighting. It was a beautiful fight. It's called Good Friday not because Jesus suffered, but because of what he accomplished that day in his obedience, in his endurance. Jesus' fight and his endurance of the cross was part of that fight, but his fight was for the joy set before him, the joy of attaining the salvation of our souls because of his love for us. Now, that's part of the good fight for us, too. Of course, we don't save souls. Only Jesus can do that. But we do participate in the Great Commission with Jesus as we serve him, as we fight the good fight, as we live our lives as his followers. It's worth it. It's worth it. It was worth it for Jesus. It's worth it for us. Brian also noted that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside us. And that same love also compels us. It motivates us to fight the good fight. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Are we convinced? Are we convinced? Are we convinced that Jesus died for us? Are we convinced that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him? If we're convinced, then Christ's love compels us. It's also that same love that changes us or should change us if we will only cooperate with the Holy Spirit. A related sidebar, part of what stirred my thinking for this message came from a book by an author named Gary Thomas. The book's called Holy Available, H-O-L-Y, Holy Available. It's where I first saw the phrase, the beautiful fight, in this particular context. One challenge to the world's view of Christians today is this. The world sees us as people who are against something or people who don't do certain things. Rather than see us as followers of Jesus, people whose lives are completely unalterably changed, so different from what we were before we followed him, they instead see us as a small-minded people with a list of things we should and shouldn't do. And in the book, he tells the story of Francis of Assisi. And he notes that Francis sensed God telling him soon after his conversion that all those things that you have loved in the flesh you must now despise. And from those things that you formerly loathed, you will drink great sweetness and immeasurable delight. This is what God told Francis at his conversion. And apparently he tested Francis in this very soon after his conversion because one of the things that Francis loathed before he became a Christian was lepers. And we can't understand the abhorrence that people have for lepers now that they had back in the day. But it was a horrible thing. As people deteriorated, their skin became white and started flaking off. Well, remembering that God had admonished Francis to love the things he formerly despised, what happens? Soon after his conversion, he encounters a leper. And the story goes, he jumped off his horse and he knelt in front of the leper and he proceeded to kiss the diseased white hand of this man. The point is, 
Becoming a follower of Christ should change us. It should change us. It should make us into different people. Francis had been changed to the point that he did something he would have run from before. He embraced the beautiful fight. Gary Thomas writes, Today's believers often lose touch with this sense of the glory of being a Christian. Is the Christianity taught today large enough to seize our hearts? Does its promise of transformation so compel us that we would give all to take hold of it? He goes on to note that the Christian life truly is a beautiful fight. There's drama, there's passion, there's struggle, there's vision. All of these things are the things we need to feel alive, to feel motivated, to feel compelled to live for something beyond ourselves. But sadly, Christianity is seen by many in the world today, again, as a list of things we don't do. Now, of course, there are some lists in Scripture, Okay, so I don't want to minimize those things, even just prior to the passage we focused on this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul gives Timothy just such a list. But you know what? It's not enough. These to-do lists, these don't-do lists, in and of themselves, they're not enough, and they certainly aren't the sum total of our faith. In the book, there's a story of one young woman who told the author, why would I ever want to become a Christian? All they want me to do is dump the good music from my iPod and wear ugly clothes. Well, that's kind of a sad comment. The presence of Jesus in our lives is supposed to make a difference that goes beyond what we listen to or don't listen to. Preaching mere moralism is the surest way to tire people out. Because in one sense, we're all going to fall short of the ideal. And in another sense, spending our lives trying not to do something is far less than we are created for. If our goal in life is primarily to avoid something, then at best we achieve nothing. Such a faith will never capture our hearts. If a young woman won't even empty her iPod for that faith, why would she ever give up her life for it? Incarnational spirituality, the living, reigning, and ascended Jesus, living through us and transforming us into different people, does not exist to uphold a few rules, but rather speaks of a process that creates an entirely new person who sees with new eyes, feels with a new heart, hears with renewed ears, and lives with a new passion. It is, I believe, the only life worth living God didn't create you not to do something. God made each of us in his image. And he wants us to recapture that image, to surrender to his work in our lives so that we will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Why do we follow Christ? What is our motivation? Why do athletes give all for the prize of a championship? For whatever their version of the joy set before them, they do endure, don't they? For each of us as followers of Christ, that motivation is to fight the good fight. And that the good fight is worth it. It's worth it. When Milad and Susan return to Egypt in September, they'll be returning to many challenges. But they're returning to fight the good fight. When Patty Elan spends hours and hours preparing for the VBS, just a few weeks after coming back from a similar, very intense ministry in Kenya, 
She's no doubt physically tired and weary, but she's fighting the good fight. When Gordon's back is causing him real pain, but he gets on a plane to fly halfway around the world to minister the word of God, he's fighting the good fight. When Spencer or Carl or Dave come down here on Monday nights to minister at the med van, what's their motivation? They're fighting the good fight. When 20 of our brothers and sisters from TCF raise or earn thousands of dollars to go to a challenging place like Kenya, halfway around the world, to minister the love of Christ, they're fighting the good fight. When you give your hard-earned money to an endeavor like this, you're fighting the good fight too. When you get up every day just to do your job, whether it's accounting or construction or caring for your children. That too, when it's done as unto the Lord, is fighting the good fight. It's part of it. Why do we do all these things? Because hopefully, hopefully we've determined that it's worth it. We've determined that it's worth it. Whatever the inconvenience, whatever the pain, whatever the difficulty, whatever the cost, it's worth it. We see the joy set before us. And because of that, we've determined it's worth it. We see the prize. Now, the prize isn't our salvation. Jesus already earned that. And fighting the good fight doesn't earn us our place in heaven. In another place in his letters to Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. As followers of Christ, fighting the good fight, we are looking forward to what's in store for us, the crown of righteousness. But we haven't yet finished the race, as Paul was able to say. But as Warren Wiersbe said, for the Christian, heaven isn't simply a destination, it's a motivation. Someday I hope everyone here can say, I have fought the good fight. hope we can say like Paul was able to write here, I have fought the good fight. I hope we can say that we have kept the faith. I hope that the crown of righteousness in store for us is all the motivation we need to fight the good fight and declare that everything we do, everything we give, everything we sacrifice, whether it be time or money or energy or experience, house or home or anything else, it's all worth it because it's a good fight. It's a noble fight. It's a beautiful fight. And it's worth every ounce of effort it takes to fight the good fight. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us motivation. We know we are creatures that need to be compelled. And Lord, we thank you that you don't just leave us here to compel ourselves, but that you give us this good fight, this beautiful fight that's truly, truly worth it. Help us to remember that, Lord, as we go about our daily task, especially, Father, as we have a hard time seeing the connection between the good fight and changing a diaper or the good fight and reconciling a bank account or the good fight and helping a neighbor 
Father, help us especially in those times when it's not as clearly connected and it's easy for us to see, to remember that everything we do unto you is fighting the good fight. And Lord, as we recognize this, as we remember this, may this truly be a motivation for us. May this be a motivation to complete the race, Father God, so that we can say, as Paul said, I have fought the good fight. Help us to come to that day, Father, knowing that there is indeed a crown of righteousness in store for us who fight the good fight. We thank you, Lord God, for these great truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.